This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Hello and welcome to For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today we are speaking with Obi Kaufman. In every single cell of us, we are the land, we are the earth. We are physiologically interconnected in a potentially infinite way. So how could we understand that? How could we quantify that? How could we leave that? Because that is wholly terrestrial in nature. That is our interconnection to the biosphere process of evolution, that there is no removing us from. Obi Kaufman is an award-winning author of many best-selling books on California's ecology, biodiversity, and geography. Obi's signature style is as artful as it is analytic, combining masterful renderings of wildlife, hand-painted maps, and data-driven storytelling to present a hopeful and integrated vision of California's future. An avid conservationist, Obi Kaufman regularly travels around the state, presenting his work and vision of ecological restoration and preservation from the Klamath Siskiyou Wildland Center to the Mojave Desert Land Trust. Most recently, Obi was the artist in residence for the National Park Service at Whiskeytown National Recreation Area. You can catch him every month in conversation with author and tribal chairman Greg Saris in their podcast called Place and Purpose. A lifelong resident of California, Obi Kaufman makes his home base in Oakland and is currently working on field atlases to come. Well, Obi, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really looking forward to conversing and exploring and seeing where our conversation goes. Oh, what a privilege. What an honor. Thank you, Ayana. I am such a fan of the work that you all do at For the Wild. I am so excited to be a guest today. Well, thank you. Well, you know, the feeling is mutual. I was mentioning before we officially started that I am a fan and have your books in my little library and have always been drawn to the way you weave art and science together. And and maybe that's a good place for us to start, which is, yeah, just the way that you blend. And it's so beautiful. And I'd really love if you could explain what draws you to this weaving and, and why you think your work resonates so deeply with so many of us. Mm, thank you. Thank you for a wonderfully deep question to kick things off here. You know, I mean, what a what a wonderful thing it is, really, that we can have 
an hour-long conversation about this topic. What you just encapsulated right there in your query is is something that we could spend days unpacking. In fact, I do. These books keep coming out uh, of me, Ayana. It's almost as if sometimes I get confused as whether or not I'm making them or they're making me, right? There's like this creative force that's like pushing on me to get them out and realized as if the books themselves are the length of a human thought that needs to be fully formed and rendered. And it takes about 500 pages and yet still per volume. But at the end of it, I'm still like, I don't know if I answered the question at all. The teeter-totter, the seesaw between science and art, where you have science answering questions and you have art questioning answers. And yet they often switch rules in that regard too, isn't it? Where where the art of asking the right questions in a scientific context is entirely necessary as well. The art of the well-rendered hypothesis makes science at all possible. And this was really codified in the work of one of the greatest 20th century naturalists, at least in my mind, Edward Wilson, E.O. Wilson, who pioneered such ideas as theory of island biogeography, biodiversity itself. He's often accredited with coining biophilia, the idea that we are hardwired to love life. His 1989 book called Consilience, The Unity of Knowledge, made a meteoric impact on my creative self from a young age where he imagines, as a naturalist, he puts this in sort of ecological terms where he says, there's sort of an edge effect that occurs between between different ecotones in human thought. So let me just unpack that for a second. The edge effect is the idea that on the landscape, there is this space between habitat structures, like between the, the forest and the meadow. You have this abundance of resources where species, animal species and plant species, might find a wealth of ecological niches inside of, right? And so you get this abundance of of biodiversity inside of this ecotone, which is the word ecologists use for the space between spaces, between habitat spaces. So there's this edge effect that happens between art and science as well, where the two overlap. And you know, the product is greater than the sum of its parts, where you have inroads to greater understanding, to greater meaning, to greater depths of narrative. And that's really where I hope to go to with all of this work, where we're sort of bypassing, defusing, unplugging all of this divisive political rhetoric with all this agenda making. Uh, that so often dominates our popular discourse, especially in a democratic context, right? I'd rather be in the camp of of storytelling than argument-making, right? So that's why I I eschew the idea of being like a pundit or a politician, although I'm engaged as a citizen on whatever level, whether it be my town, my county, my state, my biosphere, whatever it is, I really push back on a couple of core sort of constructs that include commonly used phrases such as expert, right? Or 
even something like politician, right? One who knows, one who has an agenda or has claimed an authority over this thing called truth, especially in the context of this moment in time, this, this 21st century that we are wrestling with figuring out such words as sustainability, for example, or resiliency. What is the nature of human ecology and the more than human world? I'm not exactly sure. All I've got is this trajectory, this orientation based on this consilience of the physical sciences and the aesthetic world of art making. So I think that's my little intro to how those two worlds might work. Ayana, what do you think of that? Hmm. Goodness. Well, there's so much to think about there. And I am really considering how we as a society seem to have forgotten about the artistry that is so much of science. You know, you had kind of mentioned that in the the art of the inquiry. And so I'm wondering how can we bring back the focus to this idea and bring humanity mm. into, well, I want to say into data-driven pursuits, but that doesn't sound very artistic. Mm. And so, yeah, so much of science has become godlike in today's progressive communities. Then I kind of also wonder about this trifecta of art, God, and data-driven pursuits, I guess. And where do we blend those all together in a way that feels balanced and more true, where one isn't overtaking the other? Yes, yeah. I don't even know if that's the actual question, though, either, because there's so much that we can pull from here. So much of our culture is built on this trifecta. So, gosh, yeah, please, just if any of that's poking at you, I'd love to hear what you think. Right. Right, right, right. How do we, how do we know for asking the right questions? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Especially when we use vocabulary words such as God. I quickly go to a space where, where we need to sort of define the traditions of our cultural context, right? Because it's a place that is largely unfamiliar to me. I didn't grow up with any religious tradition. I don't know. Did you? No, I was raised quite secularly. So, mm-hmm. no, but I long to connect with something beyond intellect mm. and science for that matter and feel a type of, I don't know if it's emptiness, but it's definitely this feeling that there has to be something more that we really don't understand the whole story, even with the best of research. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's more to it and we may never understand that in a data or intellectual driven way and can that be okay? And maybe that's where the art comes in. It's like the art picks up where the science leaves off or maybe it's vice versa. That's right. That's right. There is this materialist view of the world, which is certainly an ontology, right? Ontology. Ontology is the study of why matter exists, right? There's this ontology that suggests that you can live your whole life thinking that 
the physical substance of our reality is the whole of it. In fact, the scientific method, which, as you said, is so often a substitute for godlike technology, because it is sort of a skeleton key into a particular scale of truth perception and experimental predictability that has worked very well thus far, you know, to do what we wanted it to do. But our minds evolved on the, uh, you know, African savanna, where medium-shaped creatures moving at medium speeds through phenomenological reality. And that has uh, worked very well in a Newtonian sense. But over the past 120 years, since, since the sort of psychological revolution represented by this Einsteinian concept of reality where energy and mass are equivocal at great speeds we're finding now Ayana I'm I am the son of a astrophysicist my father Dr. William Kaufman III was the uh, was the director of the Griffith Observatory for a time and he wrote many college textbooks on astronomy and whatnot his books were called the universe or discovering the universe was another one or, or cosmic frontiers of general relativity was another one, you know? So, so for, I grew up under my, in my father's shadow uh, and Dr. Kaufman's son was going to be a mathematician. Right? So I have something in me that is programmed. <laughs> I have a lot of software in, in, in my, in my heart, soul and mind that is oriented towards uh, mathematical models and system thinking on that level. And I still find it fascinating. And I, and I find the new physics, right? Here we are uh, 80 years after um, the Manhattan Project, you know, since Oppenheimer. Anyway, here we are 80 years past that when we're thinking of post-Einsteinian reality, when we're thinking about freeing we're thinking about certain concepts of our universe, including the Big Bang, including dark matter, that are really open to new mathematical models, perhaps. Like these singularities that have just never worked out mathematically. And answering those questions might get us to become truly an intergalactic species, maybe. In fact, this is a roundabout way on a, to getting to a couple of things that I'd love to sort of work out with you here in real time is the idea, one, that perhaps that's not a good destiny for our species to, to leave Earth. Or even more so, I don't believe that we can because of what you said before intimated at the godlike aspect to what I ascribe that to be, which is the infinity of life forms that we bodily represent physiologically. I mean, as we are sitting here right now, you and I are both breathing in and out hundreds of thousands of fungal spores that have co-evolved with us for hundreds of millions of years into our earliest vertebral forms. 
even before that into the very mitochondrial DNA that inhabits a foreign place in our human bodies. In every single cell of us, we are the land. We are the earth. We are physiologically interconnected in a potentially infinite way. So how could we understand that? How could we quantify that? How could we leave that? Because that is wholly terrestrial in nature. That is our interconnection to the biosphere process of evolution that there is no removing us from. And I don't think that's a gloomy thought at all. <laughs> I think that that is a holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, that is a holy integrating impulse that fuels my creative vocation, right? It fuels the thing that I'm going after. This And the thing that I'm going after isn't a thing at all. Of course, it's a process. It is a trail. It is not the destination at the end of the trail. And, uh, and I think that by that practice, I'm coming almost asymptotically, you know, it's like, they'll never quite get there, but it'll get there infinitely close and close to what I'm not exactly sure. Something like infinity, something like God, something like connection, something like fearlessness in the face of death. I, you know, I think about that a lot in terms of climate change and my own sense of activism and community. So like, you know, all of this sort of transcendent yet imminent experience that, you know, is so well expressed by just the flow of watercolor on paper, right? And which brings me to like the Zen of the painting experience, which is why, gosh, Ayana, I guess why I do what I do. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Well, yeah, there's so much there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There, there is, and I don't mean to go completely big or completely deep, but I absolutely do because no, I love it. I, you know, I, I yeah, no, I'm, I'm totally into it. Why not? I, okay. like, <laughs> good, good, good. Yeah. Why, you know? Yeah, I think that one of the great challenges of our time, of course, is, is uh, climate change, or as I sort of less euphemistically call it in my books, um, climate breakdown by way of anthropogenic global warming apt description of what is happening in real time across the now. There's this existential dread, this doomful heuristic that manifests itself in the real sort of you know deleterious our mental health suffers from from this from this daily charge of what is presented to us as the withering of the biosphere because of the choices that we are making. Which is an okay way of going about it, but if, but but there are other ways of, of looking at it in order such that we might confront it more uh, holistically uh, from 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 a healthier perspective, as opposed to one that is ungrounded, uncentered, panicked, um, and you know potentially undemocratic because of it as well. You know, I'm, I'm one who really believes in the democratic process. Uh, 
I mean, the subject of my work is California, which is, which is a political entity, which is a democratic entity. It doesn't exist except for in, politi- in political semiotic conversation. We have this symbol of this thing called California. You know, and I use that as a metaphor for greater processes across the land and inside of me. And it's a capable enough metaphor to do that to hold all of it, to hold all of my views on how the world, society, and ecology is glued together, you know, by way of investigation of these very complex systems within systems. there in Alaska today in Glacier Bay I wonder I wonder how you are dealing with climate anxiety up there I mean I imagine you live in a very rural community out far from you know the dense urban populations that I deal with every day living in downtown Oakland California <laughs> oh yeah I think we can't escape the climate anxieties and the climate realities of this moment, no matter where we are. And it Mm. impacts us all psychologically, if not, you know, of course, materially. And I'm thinking about humans being nature and we're not separate, which of course is something that is, I think most of us know in a rational type of way, but Mm. um, what does that really mean or look like today with these ideas of the Anthropocene where it seems like we have become so separate from nature, which is why we're even dealing with the issues of climate Mm. change, because we have tried to separate ourselves and think of ourselves as humans as more mighty or intelligent than the rest of nature. And, you know, we could totally go down that rabbit hole of how and why we separated even though we never can be separate anyways, we completely rely on this earth. Right. And I really appreciate how much you engage with the idea that our human concept of nature is constructed and often serves a very specific societal purpose. But at the same time, you also recognize just how important conservation and protecting these so-called you know, natural spaces can be so it would be interesting to dive into this tension a bit more deeply. Yeah, I'd love to hear what you think. Now, uh, 
I love the point you just made there. And if I understand it, I think that there's great truth there that's presented in paradoxes. I love the idea of paradoxes. And a paradox, you know, I guess I mean, uh, you know, for this conversation, we can call paradox like any sort of absurd preposition that yields surprising or counterintuitive truths because of it, right? So one of the one of the paradoxes might be that there's this game of alienation that civilization has played with itself in different forms, in different degrees, on different spectrums uh, since, you know, for what, 100,000 years since the cognitive revolution, right? When we, when we invented the, the notion of fiction, when we invented the notion of uh, art, something seems to have switched on in us in a way that we don't really see represented elsewhere in the fossil record anywhere. And now we're chasing this self that is manifest psychologically. See, my mom was a psychologist. So now you're getting my full family story here. I got, uh, got my astrophysicist father, and then I got my clinical psychologist mother. And so somehow the you know, nature nurture argument inside of my own body and self is resolved or entangled therein, and I am uh, fascinated by the the psychological development of the anthropological human. What that thing then that is, uh, as you said, nature nature we can call we can call nature maybe this is really pushing the limits of what I believe is the English language, right? Uh, nature, nature with a capital N uh, might be what exists inside of you and that you can never separate yourself from, right? But then there's the nature with the little n, which is the course of American policy, right? Nature with the little n is the thing to be saved, I guess. And it's also the thing to be sort of fetishized economically. It's like, well, we if we just set aside enough of it, <laughs> it's going to be um, okay, <laughs> which suggests whole realms of intellectual anemia, right? Like, it's just like the connective tissue that is represented in landscapes across different ecologies has a direct through line to the well-being of human communities everywhere at every stage of our history across the planet. And tracing that through the deep time and space of California, I have sort of parsed into these different books that I write and explore through this consilient theory into this aesthetic space across this you know, complex horizon of different sort of dancing variables inside of this this matrix that is that is land area, that is that is human policy, that is stories being told, that is you know, bottlenecks being experienced inside of climatic temporality. Um, I find interestingly, and this is another paradox, to just unpack that very complex sentiment that I just expressed to unpack and return it to this very simple space. Every single one of my books 
is built on very simple questions that I'm just trying to get some good answers. Okay. So my first book in 2017 was the California Field Atlas. And that book changed my life. And that was based on a very simple question too. Like what elements of California and thus the whole natural world, right? Because I use California as a microcosm for a greater macrocosm of the natural world or the more than human world. What are those aspects that have always been, at least, you know, in the past 6 million years or so since the middle Miocene, the sort of tectonic configuration of the California space began to resemble its current self. You know, you can sort of say that's California. What aspects of California have always been? What aspects continue to be despite the very successfully imposed urban veneer over the past 170 years or so since the gold rush of 1850? Uh, And what aspects of California will always be, right? So there's this temporal aspect across the spatial aspect. Uh, which is where the secret of the genre that is the field atlas came from, right? The field atlases don't exist. I invented it to tell this very specific story, uh, not about where things are or how to get places or, uh, you know, but to democratize the whole space, if you will, not just the the marquee things of like Yosemite or the giant coastal redwoods, in there, but like the whole of California, these watersheds across the western slope of the Sierra Nevada, say, North America's longest contiguous mountain range, I mean to say, it's also its highest. These watersheds across the west slope of the Sierra Nevada, you know, back then they emptied into what geologists call the San Pablo Sea, right? Which is an ocean that doesn't exist. And now you go through all my books and you find no roads, right? Because I'm much more interested in drawing that blue line of say, like the Yuba river, for example, Uh, not surrounded by these little red lines that will return to the dust from which they are made in the next few hundred years. Right. But that blue line of the Yuba river will look like that for millions of years to come. And that sort of exploration of deep time, especially in the context of now, especially in the context of today's bottleneck, you know, climatic bottleneck, societal bottleneck, whatever it is, is a great wellspring of this thing called hope, this actionable, beautiful, amorphous thing called hope. And and so that was my first book, right? So there's temporal aspect. And then I sort of organized it in like, you know, these grand living systems of earth, air, fire, and water, right? How did this How do these big adaptive cycles inform this world-class portfolio of biodiversity that California still enjoys? Because although every single one of our landscape types here in California are either threatened, endangered, or critically endangered, we have a very low extinction rate across the state still in 20. 23 we we have a less than one percent extinction rate now it's, it's a little bit higher with some classifications you know we've lost uh, five to ten percent of our of our freshwater fish species for example across the state we've lost some beautiful creatures including that that magnificent creature that we put on on our state flag uh the california grizzly in 2023 we are commemorating the 100th year 
since the last California grizzly was killed in Sequoia National Forest in 1923. So what I've done in my next books, okay, so I did the state of water and, and that was, and to go back to these simple questions, okay, so these simple questions, California state of water, state of water, understanding California's most precious resource. That book is very simply about uh, water storage, water conveyance, and then water usage in the state. And so that book, a thin little book that sort of breaks the format of, of my larger books, was really just sort of a large math problem that was peppered with my poetic and artistic voice ruminating on, on California's it's hydrological future, we can say, uh, in terms of surface water and surface water ecology. So it's a very, it's very narrow focus. And then I opened it up again. And this is, and Ayana, this is the big thrust that I'm celebrating here with you today, uh, that I've written the third book now in what has become the California Lands Trilogy. This is a series of California field atlases that began four years ago with the publishing of The Forests of California. And then it moves through to the coasts of California. And now this year, my new book is called The Deserts of California. And that book is arriving in bookstores fall 2023. It is here now, and it is my baby. And I am, don't tell the other books, but I think it might be my favorite. So, so I was telling you before that all my books have like very simple questions behind them. The Forests of California, uh, the first book in this series, really asks simple questions like, what rivers flow through what national forests in California? Like, it's such a simple question, <laughs> but it's a very difficult answer to get, especially on a popular level. I mean, you can go to, you know, the USFS, United States Forest Service site, or USGS, or Department of Energy, and you can kind of find maps of rivers as they go through the political borders that are the the Forest Service's designation of the 17 national forests in California. But it's it's very difficult information to find, and it's not really for you. It's usually for a researcher or a forester. They're not really on roadmaps. So I wanted to make very information very easily accessible on that level. And then and then that opened up the whole can of worms as to how the forests themselves are different in character with respect to specifically arboreal ecology, right? What is a tree at all is another question, sort of like what is nature? But, you know, uh, uh, inside of a forest ecosystem, especially today in, in, when we're asking questions like what is a wildfire or what is a healthy forest? And, you know, I found some, I found some, Shocking discoveries there, too. For example, uh, here we are in the 21st century in California, and there are more trees in California now than there have ever been in its entire geologic history. There's more trees now in California than there has ever been. And so you hear or you see bumper stickers everywhere, plant more trees, plant more trees. And I question that reasoning in regards to our goals and the biogeographic reality on the landscape. For example, if, if we're really going for carbon sequestration, 
We need healthy forests. We don't need more trees. Our forests are, in fact, after 100 years of fire suppression policy, say, from the United States Forest Service, we have, we have trees that are potentially overpopulated, infirmed, stressed, beetle-ridden. We have, which, and all of those things might be very well inside of larger, very natural regimes, too. There's nothing new about the situation that we are in right now as far as, as far as, for example, drought is concerned, for, for example, as far as fire is concerned. What, we, what is novel now is the, is the uptick in, in global temperature. The simple question that I asked for my next book, the second volume, was the coasts of California. And that was simply to ask, what would a biogeographic survey of the viewshed of California's shoreline actually look like from the very north of the state, Crescent City, say, Del Norte County, all the way down to San Diego, the very south of the state. And it's funny, I called the book The Coasts of California. And the idea of pluralizing the coasts was so novel that when I bought the uh, website, the URL or whatever for the coasts of California.com, I paid like 25 cents for it. Like, I guess it's because nobody had thought to like think of the coast of California as more than one thing when ecologically it very much is, as you know, being from Mendocino, it's like, or having lived in Mendocino, are you from Mendocino or did you just live there? I was born and raised in Southern California, but lived in Mendocino. So I'm, yeah, oh, familiar with okay. the coastline. Oh, okay. Okay. So you know, you know how, how ecologically different those two characters are. Oh, very different. Right? Quite. So how could you not pluralize them if you're really looking? Yes. Yes. <laughs> My, the third in the series now, The Deserts of California, this new book, Beyond the Sierra Crest. Uh, beyond this temperate space where that you and I know so well, across these these arid landscapes, the modern California deserts themselves, a very recent geologic phenomenon, very recent, uh, just about the same age as the Holocene, really, uh, in this interglacial period that we're experiencing still over the past 12,000 years. Uh, I find that... You know, the, in the deserts of California, which includes, like, for example, 70, 72 different maps of all of the federal wilderness areas, hand-painted maps of how, uh, of how um, the greater systems of, of, of biogeography and hydrology work within these wilderness areas. I've got 72 maps. But what those maps do, and I, and I lament at some point early on in the book that I could have, like, made many of these maps with a pair of scissors instead of a paintbrush, you know, which is, which is ideologically, politically, what these land designations actually do and how they are drawn with a broad pair of scissors that cuts the landscape up. And so, and so the simple question that I asked in the deserts book, which turns out is not so simple. There, there's two parts of it really. Uh, the first part would be something like, is there a bottom threshold 
of anthropogenic disturbance that we can impose on the ecology by which it does not recognize itself and collapses into something completely other than what it was? Or has that already happened? Does the Mojave Desert, for example, one of the four deserts that I explore in this new book, The Deserts of California, is the Mojave Desert something completely different now than what it was before, say, colonization? So the second part of that question would be, what is the role that fetishizing nature as nature can be put away into this wilderness area? This is where nature exists. Is that at all an apt way of going about the thing called conservation? And if, and if not, are we going to let great be the enemy of good? It's not the greatest thing, but it's what we've got, you know. So, so I wrestle with this a lot, Ayala, and I think that's probably where I am at this point. I'm in a lot of discussions these days with Sacramento, specifically one guy. His name is Wade Crowfoot, and he's the our state secretary of natural resources. And uh, let me see just if I could plug my own podcast, which is placeandpurpose.live, in which once a month me and the chairman of the Federated Indians of the Great Rancheria in Santa Rosa Greg Saris, who's also an author and a professor um, of literature at Stanford and at UCLA, uh, and he's the tribal chairman. He and I sit down once a month and discuss issues of seasonality and traditional ecological knowledge and, and whatnot. Uh, Wade, the sec Secretary Crowfoot, joined us for a conversation uh, this month uh, wherein we talked a lot about the 30 by 30 program. Are you familiar with the 30 by 30 program? I am, yeah. Um, but maybe some of our listeners aren't. Right, right, right. So so it's it's moved to a national scale, but it really had its seeds here in California with the present Newsom administration. Gavin Newsom is our governor. The Newsom administration who who put forth the goal that by the year 2030, we will understate protection towards guidelines that are intended to protect biodiversity okay in all of its different forms under 
the auspice of this protection, we will have designated this land equating to 30% of it, right? So 30% of the total land area of California, and California is very easy to figure out. So you got like, you got about 100 million. It's about 101 point something million acres in California. 160,000 square miles. California's uh, not small. It's, it's no Alaska, but it's not small. Uh, so so we got about 30 million acres. Right now we've got about 24 and a half million acres that qualify. So so in the next six years, we've got about 6 million acres to go to protect California's land and its waters. Waters, the protected marine environments at about 16%, right? So we've got a lot more work to do with protecting our, our, our offshore ecologies. But the deserts, the deserts are doing so much work. Uh, because of these 72 wilderness areas uh, that I've got mapped out in the book, or largely because of them, but we also got some national parks and some state parks down there. The desert itself is doing so much heavy lifting for this goal of 30 by 30. And I've got a lot of criticisms about 30 by 30. And, uh, and yet, and yet, and yet. I have little choice but to love this program, this 30 by 30 vision. There's no choice. Um, I get scared, for example, that, that what happens if we make that goal? Are people going to acquiesce somehow into a state of complicity where, where it will have seemed as if we, we did it, we saved nature? Now we have a license to trash the other 70%. Or, what, yeah, what if we stop? Wouldn't it make so much more sense to, to carry on from 30 by 30 to do 50 by 50, which is the half-Earth idea, which is, which is really probably what it's going to take to give these species enough buffer zone in order to... in order to retain these vectors of resiliency often embedded into the very nature of biodiversity itself. Uh, you know, in order to, to keep that complement, that steward, that miracle, if you will, of the fact that, you know, we have an extinction rate of 1%. So it's tough because what we've got here now, have you ever driven across the Mojave Desert or have you done it lately? Probably about... Two years ago. Two years ago. Okay, perhaps, perhaps if, uh, uh, you know, if you're driving from like San Bernardino to Vegas, you will have passed the Ivanpah Solar Farm to the north, just, just really close to the Nevada border. Massive solar array. Okay. So those are, those are springing up all across the desert. These incredibly expensive and by expensive i'm not talking about economics i'm talking about ecological expense these are incredibly ecologically expensive contraptions contrivances machines we've got across wind farms solar farms and geothermal farms across california's deserts we've got about on any good given day we've got about seven megawatts of energy that, that we can draw from the grid. And, and this is 
necessary in order for our greater goal, which is drawdown, carbon drawdown. We need to get away from fossil fuels. And this is what we've got right now. But by 2045, 2045 is when California plans on becoming a net carbon sink. No longer a carbon source. A net carbon sink by 2045 means that we will need at least 20 megawatts of wind, solar, and geothermal. Right now we're at seven. So we need tw- so we're going to need to raise R-A-Z-E. We're going to need to raise about a quarter million more acres across the desert in order to do that and build these solar monstrosities to find this cheap solar energy that uh, that we need to to power our electric lives and hey i get it i remember that my books here my books here are saying we're acting under an assumption that there is some sort of essential bottom level right you hear that a lot in conversation circles like what is essential habitat and i'm here to really consider that that question might be a paradox, that that question might be inappropriate, and that question might even, perhaps cynically, be rooted in economics and not in ecological science. Uh, How much can we get away with seems to be the subtext of the question. What is the, you know, what is the bottom limit to what we can exploit and yet still not be committing ecocide, say? And I don't know if that's a good question. And so we press forward hoping that this dangerous gamble of not letting good be the enemy of great in this democratic context of negotiation, compromise, and disappointment, ultimately, uh, that uh, that the biodiversity holds on and the Mojave remembers itself, for example, that 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 we don't lose the existential entity that is this 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 precious jewel of biodiversity of evolutionary of, a, of ancient evolutionary processes that is our great gift honor and sacred duty to witness to protect and to and to engage with on a reciprocal level such that the investment is not wasted in how we take care of it, it will take care of us. In taking, and furthermore, you can push that further, in taking care of it, we are taking care of us. In all human communities across the history of time, there is a direct through line between the fitness and robustness of biodiversity and the fitness and robustness of the human community that it's adjacent to and that that goes something like this it's like the math of like like 
biodiversity means healthy ecosystems. Healthy ecosystems means predictable, deliverable ecological services within naturalized regimes that are that are then uh, tappable, uh, perhaps even exploitable by the human communities that necessarily need them for the supply chains all the way down to the bottom. And that very straightforward line of logic is something that seems so lost to the, the materialist 21st century consumer capitalist industry that can't begin addressing the word sustainability. Oh, that felt good to say, Ayana. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gosh. Well, sustainability is a tricky one. And also I feel like rewilding is getting a bit tricky. Mm. And you had a talk called Thinking Like a Watershed in the Age of Resiliency. And you say, quote, I speak of rewilding as an evolutionary concept rooted in deep time, offering what can be a kind of genetic code, an informational cipher, even a heading for our efforts based in determining insight as to the character of California's truer self. The one beyond the so successfully imposed concrete veneer of the 20th and 21st century, end quote. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I really enjoy the way you speak about the idea of rewilding mm-hmm. and the important distinction between the idea of rewilding that comes from a misplaced idea that we can control nature and an idea of rewilding as this deeply rooted evolutionary concept that you refer to. So yeah, I'd love to hear how you're thinking about rewilding now and the role you see it playing in California's future. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's so much, there's so much in a prefix, right? Re, R-E, you know, every, every, from, from return to reservation to rewilding to reciprocal to, um, you know, restoration to uh, reverse. There is a looking backward in order to look ahead. Circular aspect to that uh, to that horizon, and you know, on my on my podcast, sitting across from Greg Zaris, uh, he uh, he often talks about. Uh, the Southern Pomo Kashaya dreamer, one of one of the great basket weavers of North Bay, um, North Bay arts in the uh, late 19th, early 20th centuries, uh, which made makers the most beautiful baskets. And if you know about the tradition of California basket making and, and among among indigenous peoples, it's 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 wrapped up in this whole narrative of how humanity works in the world and uh, his his teacher this, this kashaya woman her name was mabel mckay mabel mckay says um you think you know she, she's such a plain speaker <laughs> greg does her very well she you know she's such a plain speaker she says you think your ideas are so new nothing is new discovery doesn't exist it's just all remembering and there's that re again, isn't it? <laughs> There's that prefix, uh, remembering. Um, there is so much wisdom in that, and so much license. It license to 
not have to rely on the novel innovation. The novel innovation is a great help. But remembering, restoring, rewilding is about engaging very old systems. We don't have to figure it out. It does it by itself. You give it half a chance and it'll figure it out. There are major biotic pieces of the puzzle that are missing. For example, the beaver or the salmon, which historically have, historically, <laughs> when I say historically, I mean at the end of the last century. Like, like the, the time that has passed is nothing. I mean, a century is a very long time for a human, but for a place, it's a blink. It's a. It's not even a blink. It's a. It's. It's. There's no quantifiable measure that is that is that is recognizable in human space for how insignificant it is in time over the way that ecosystems evolve to become the, their resilient selves. That paradox, though, is is rivaled by the extraordinary rate by which you know this 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 species of ours and its in its current configuration this this worldly zeitgeist that is that is this capitalistic fire cult if you will fire everywhere when you fire everywhere i mean you, you know from speaking metaphorically uh but making a larger point that that uh, we are the atmosphere, we are the the hydrosphere, we are we are agents of some sort of programming that may or may not be attended to. Our, what is the limits of our agency? Is our age, like, and this this gets me critical of the nature of activism in general. Although I appreciate local community because in California where I exist is responsible for about 1% of the total carbon emissions across the biosphere every year. You know, and so we're working on that. We're, we're working on 1%. We can do that here. Of course, you know, uh, under the neoliberal globalist regime, we're under in the, you know, we are, we are, we are integrated into in the 21st century. What can be done on a global level remains remains up in the air. How how do we steer the ship of eight billion people? I'm not exactly sure. But what I can attest to is the is the nature of community to engage one's landscape. And I and and that is where I hope that my books, as far as ecological literacy find their best quality. And what I mean by that is, is that I want to, for as much as possible, remain non-prescriptive in my political agenda. Because I'm fascinated by complex systems. And whatever, whatever system you're talking about, if it's complex, it experiences something called emergent phenomena. Emergent phenomena are 
these are these unexpected, entirely unpredictable occurrences where where good things happen or catastrophic things happen or catastrophically good things happen. And if we can just sort of like stand on the teeter-totter enough such that we weight it towards catastrophic success as opposed to catastrophic failure, might we engage these endemic indigenous systems might we remember these systems as mabel mckay might say in order such that we leave the natural world of california and indeed the biosphere at the end of the 21st century regardless of the injuries of climate change in better shape than we left it at the end of the 20th century i think it's entirely within our scope of work, let's say. So that's probably where I'm going to sort of generally address that question. If I did at all, Iona. <laughs> I mean, these questions are not capable of being directly answered. So I think what you did respond with was interesting. And I was following you and thinking you know, it's hard not to think about old growth forest, which is something that I have been deeply devoted to for years. And mm. I really appreciate how much you engage with the old growth forests of California, which have totally swept me away. And um, I just don't feel like this conversation would be complete if we didn't give some time to those just incredible spirits and places. And in your talk, thinking like a watershed in the age of resiliency, you say, quote, although no human has yet witnessed the return of old growth conditions, we can imagine what such a community might look like, end quote. And so there's a number of questions, like one I'm imagining, or I'm wondering how the power of imagination plays into your work and mm -hmm. into your general philosophy of conservation. And, and then, you know, specifically with old growth, it does challenge us to expand our frameworks of time. If that's even something our minds can, you know, or are truly even capable of, which I question, you know, you had mentioned deep time. And so, yeah, just thinking about the beauty in opening ourselves up to yeah. input from other forms of intelligence. You referred to that in the mind of the redwood forest. And so, yeah, yeah can we even comprehend deep time enough to, imagine an old growth forest mm -hmm. returning but there mm -hmm. again is the re word and i'm thinking about that from a few comments ago and so yeah it's hard for me to really even directly ask you a question about this because i'm being challenged with my thoughts on old growth forests but i know that they call so loudly and they feel they feel so powerful yet so fragile at the same time and so, yeah, yeah. So, just from one old growth lover to another, uh, yeah. wondering yeah. what your thoughts are. Uh, um, this this is all very new science, <laughs> and I can hear Mabel McKay, Kashaya Dreamer, laughing at me when I say this. But old growth 
four successive fire ecology science is a new thing. In fact, across the university system, just in the past 20 or 30 years, fire ecology has become its own thing apart from forestry, apart from silviculture. We understand now that fire is a great creative force. In fact, the snag forest, which is the, which is the early forest post-fire, post-severe fire, is more biodiverse, holds more species of songbird, say. More species of songbird rely on the snag forest than they do on the old growth forest. Right? So, so a lot of our notions on how valuable one type is to the other are beginning to reveal new stories. Uh, and we've got some big conservation challenges. 90% of our endangered species don't exist in protected areas. Uh, so we've got, we've got like core challenges. And yet, yet it's in the remembering eye on it. If I could sort of close with this dreamy story that really is as compelling as it gets. You asked me about imagining and where does imagination place in my artwork? And I, I feel like I... I like have this like this place of reverie in my mind, this daydream that's like 200 years ago, or maybe it's 200 years from now. But like I'm walking up the Sacramento River, which is the largest river in California that runs through the that runs the Sacramento Valley. There, it's fed by the northernmost rivers from the west slope of the Sierra Nevada. It's like spring. It's May, and you can you look across the flooded waters, right? Because one of the things that happens in the yearly pulse of, of water in California is that when the snowpack melts, it floods the valley to an enormous degree. Before the system, thousands of levees and impoundments and dams across the northern Sacramento River Valley were installed over the past 100 years. The river could swell to be 15 miles wide. And I can imagine walking beside the river, looking out over the river to the east, and you can see the whole surface of the water glinting nickels with the return of hundreds of thousands of mature people-sized Chinook salmon. These were, these were four or five feet foot long anadromous fish returning from their marine uh, adult lives to to find their headwaters and and along the shore are are these fat bears fat bears and when i say a fat bear i mean weigh in at like 1800 pounds you know but the brown bears of california fat off this routinely got upwards of over 2000 pounds huge bears and the the indigenous people of the north bay remind us that that uh, it wasn't until the coming of the gun that bears were dangerous to humans because of the abundance because of the fecundity of not only the land but the stories that we told about the land for thousands and thousands of years in pre-contact california that bears and humans lived and so you can imagine the the whole landscape dotted with these fat bears across this flooded river valley and in every step 
Every step is full of thousands of different flower blooms and little flower blooms. You know, in California, we get so many tiny, tiny little flowers, uh, flowers that are much smaller than a pencil eraser. And then we have hundreds and hundreds of native bees, uh, thousands of native bee species across across North America and California, but uh, close to 2,000. And, and, and it almost seems as if there's a different pollinator for every flower species. Right? So the, the whole ground is alive in this hum of you know, angiosperm magic. And angiosperm is a flowering plant, right? So, so, like, so it's a wash with color. And then I'm walking up past these terraced, this terraced landscape, which is the, the beaver dance. Okay, so, so before the fur rush, which predated the gold rush by about 20 or 30 years, there was approximately 15 to 20 million beaver in the California floristic province. They estimated that there was one or two beaver per kilometer of watercourse across the state. And when you have beavers doing their thing, slowing the water down, sinking the water, spreading it across the landscape, you get entire ecologies by the way of their ecological engineering. We get entire ecologies resistant to mega droughts that lasted hundreds of years. We know of several of them in the past uh, 2,000 years. 100-year droughts in which it seems like California Floristic Province retained its entire complement of biodiversity solely because of the largest of all North American rodents, the wonder that is the beaver. So I'm walking up the staircase of beaver dams, beaver lodges, to find ultimately the course where this Chinook salmon were going, their headwaters, where in their in their anagemous life cycle, they, they're honored to lay their mortal bodies down. And what we're talking about is hundreds of thousands of metric tons of calcium, phosphorus, nitrogen, the best plant fertilizer ever. And then, you know, under the winter snows, then washed down in the floods or carried off by you know, the thousands of raptors that, that feed on their bones and drop them throughout the forest. Feeding the forest, what, what starvation the trees, the forest itself must be experiencing now without, without that, that clockwork return of this incredible, this incredible song, song of the salmon, if you will. And so it's this dream, this dream of fecundity, this dream of abundance that is just right here. It's all written still on the landscape. We can, should, and do realize it. You can hear the salmon. We're doing things like taking out the four Klamath dams now. And sort of like the last best uh, restoration. It's, it's the best chance that California salmon have. Uh, for continued survival into the into the last half of the 21st century. And they're waiting for those dams to come. They're waiting today. We can hear them singing that song. That song is there. To help them sing that song, to witness, to say, I hear you, I hear you, is the thing that, that gets me out of bed in the morning and gets me to work on this stuff. So I'm going to leave it at that, Anna. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for letting me express that dream, that vision. That's the circuit. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm so grateful you shared Thank it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Well, it's hard to stop this conversation because there's so much more to unpack. But Oh, there really is. I'm grateful for this time. Well, you know, I felt, it, it, Anna, I really appreciate you giving me the space to wander through my thoughts here in real time. You know, I'm not, I'm not a good soundbite guy. You know, I really, I, I really want to uh, express my most authentic self with you. And I feel like you really, and as is your gift. And I've, I've seen this, you elicit this response from a number of, of authors, thinkers on this podcast. And, and as I say, to be counted amongst your community is just such a thrill. And so the thanks is all me to you. Oh, yeah, this has been really wonderful, Obi. And I'm grateful that you're in our community. And yeah, until the next time we continue this wandering. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Obi. Thank you for listening to this episode Before the Wild. The music you heard today is by Mematone, Magnetic Vines, and Daniela Lanaya. Before the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Ekram, Julia Jackson, Jackson Krupp, Evan Tenenbaum, and Jose Alejandro Rivera.